I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, Brian Hughes, recent master's graduate of Queens College Media Studies program and an expert in Arab nationalism. Arab nationalism was not consonant with the media of its day, that being television and radio. It exists to various extents in the 20th century, but it never quite seizes hold of the geopolitical reality. Brian's going to speak with us about Arab nationalism and how it relates to a new breed of American nationalism. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. Happy New Year, or at least as happy as you can make it. I've been working hard over the past couple of weeks to try to flip my pessimism into optimism to see just how can things work out? What is the best move right now, given how everything is going? And what I'm trying to bring myself to understand, the way I'm trying to see the world right now, is that Donald Trump may just be exactly what the digital economy deserves. And I don't mean it as some sort of revenge against all those libertarian nerds who ravaged our economy, but as a necessary curative. Because despite his overuse of the word big, 
Donald Trump's economic aspirations are actually decidedly small and finitely scaled in comparison to the infinitely expansionist globalist ambitions of most digital companies and the financial industry backing them. What I'm suggesting is that a dose of Trumpism, nationalism and all, may just save us from the ravages of the digital economy and offer us a fleeting but real opportunity to turn it toward the needs of people instead of capital. Don't get me wrong, you know, I'm as progressive as they come, but I've also witnessed with horror over the past 20 or so years as the potential for widespread bottom-up prosperity unleashed by digital technology was surrendered to the priorities of extractive global capitalism. This is not the way it was supposed to go, not according to me and my cyberpunk friends of the late 80s anyway. Back then, the emergence of low-cost computers and networking, they appeared to augur a peer-to-peer -peer fluid, more open economic landscape, one where we all step off the industrial age, punch the clock treadmill, and work in our own time collaboratively on creative pursuits from home in our underwear. But instead, we're getting an exacerbation of some of extractive corporatism's worst effects. Joblessness, disenfranchisement, wealth disparity, corporate lethargy, artificial growth, and financialization. And the last example of how this happened, of a reversal that took place on this grand scale, was way back in the Middle Ages, just after the expansionism of the Crusades. As European soldiers returned home, they brought with them many innovations from the Arab world. One of them was the bazaar, or what became known as the market. It was this local economic innovation that turned market activity from a big global expansionist, imperialist, colonialist thing into a bottom-up generative and local affair. The former peasants began to trade the goods they made with one another instead of simply paying it up to the lords. And they also imported the idea for market monies, money that was good for just one day, like Parker chips, except representing a loaf of bread or a pound of grain. And these monies were optimized, you know, not for delivery uh, to the king or to the lord, but for priming transactions. They were optimized for trade. And so people got wealthy. And threatened by all this new wealth, the aristocracy and the monarchs innovated against the economy of the peasants. So they made markets money illegal, they forced merchants to borrow from a central treasury at interest, and this allowed the wealthy to make money simply by controlling currency. You know, and then they also invented the charter monopoly, which made it illegal for any small business to operate. Instead, the people in that business had to become employees of one of the king's few chartered monopolies. You know, that's what I was trying to show in Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus. The idea that the hands-on economy of the artisanal marketplace ended up overtaken by the more extractive rules of early corporate industrialism. Workers got disconnected from the value they created. They got paid by the hour instead of for their value. And industrialism and mechanization that followed really were just ways to further remove human beings from the value chain. And this is what we've been living with for the last 600 or so years. You know, the growth mandate, it was great for colonial powers looking to expand into new territories because as long as there were new people to enslave or resources to extract, capital could grow. But by the end of World War II, 
all those people and places started to push back. And what we really started to look at, and this was really in the Eisenhower uh, era, was whether we could let go of expansionism. But instead of letting go, we said, oh, no, wait, digital technology will let us expand in new ways. Digital technology, which should have been able to retrieve the values of pre-industrialism, digital technology, which should have restored human to human contact to the marketplace. You know, it, it could have allowed uh, a, a new kind of market currency in the form of things like blockchain or or even simpler authentication methods. You know, the web could have enabled cottage industries and helped them thrive with newfound equal footing and distributive power. You know, meanwhile, things like the commons and crowdfunding enclosed and regulated out of existence during the corporate industrial era, they could have found new life in an age whose foundational technologies are based in the same ideas of sharing, sharing of processing cycles of computer chips. But that was reversed as well. That was reversed the same way that the monarchs reversed the newfound economic power of local markets in late medievalism. The Nasdaq Stock Exchange, Wired Magazine, the, the experts of Cambridge reversed the cyberpunk ethos of this human-centered vision of a network marketplace and replaced it with another vision of digital business. You know, this libertarian corporatism, the long boom of a digitally amplified, infinitely growing speculative economy. Now, amazingly... Donald Trump, who's a product of digital excess, if ever there was one, he may also offer renewed hope for our digital economy to work in a more distributed fashion. I mean, not intentionally, you know, but just like digital technology itself, his vision of the world is made up of discrete boundaries, an emphasis on what makes one thing or one place different from another one. Us and them is really just another way of saying one or zero. His nationalism, his protectionism, they may be based in jingoism and xenophobia, but they could also create the boundary conditions necessary for something more like a local circulatory economy to take root. Such boundaries don't just prevent the leak of jobs overseas, they also discourage American businesses from thinking of their markets as global, much less infinite. The markets in which they operate become decidedly finite. And this forces them to stop thinking of themselves as vacuum cleaners, simply sucking up all the cash in a particular territory and then moving on to the next, ad infinitum. They have to develop local economies that are capable of renewing themselves and delivering ongoing revenue. So instead of earning $10 once, businesses have to figure out how to earn the same dollar 10 times. That means not promoting the extraction of capital from a market, but the velocity of money through a market. What goes around comes around. And that's actually more consonant with digital networks, which circulate information in a distributed fashion and share resources more easily than they hoard them. They're not infinitely expanding. They're bounded and self-sustaining. But they're really difficult to execute in an economic environment that's characterized by rapid growth and startups and infinitely scaling corporate growth. The real world doesn't scale like that. Bounded nationalist movements from Trumpism to Brexit, though misguided and misinformed, 
They grew out of a growing awareness that the stated aims of the Cold War, nation-building and international monetary fund, were disingenuous. You know, indeed, they've been driven more by the need for capital for new markets and cheap labor than the human rights of the people we're supposedly saving. Neither has the purpose of the economy been to serve the welfare of real people in real places for a long, long time. It's just been optimized to serve the needs of capital for infinite global growth. So the way American foreign policy was dedicated to internationalism since World War II, our economic policy has been dedicated to global expansionism. A temporary withdrawal from that game may actually allow for some digital distributism to gain traction. It could force us to remember that an economy doesn't require global scale or growth to function. It simply needs people with skills, people with needs, and a means of exchange. Likewise, the looming specter of gross federal incompetence. Many of Trump's appointees are antagonistic to the very agencies that they've been appointed to administrate. That will require those on the ground in municipalities across the nation to develop strategies for economic and social viability from the bottom up. Don't be surprised to see labor cooperatives, commons-based approaches to resource management, even local currencies emerge to fill in where federal action falls short. While these mechanisms may not have worked convincingly before, digital technologies may just lend us the decentralized methods of accounting and authentication that we lacked in the Middle Ages. Whether we like it or not, it's again time to return from the Crusades and build an economy here at home. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College and online at teamhuman.fm. I can't think of a better way to engage with these issues of uh, neo-nationalism than talking to my friend, my colleague, my former student until a couple of weeks ago, Brian Hughes. So, Brian Hughes. Douglas Rushkoff. I'm still buzzing from your uh, master's presentation at Queens <laughs> College a couple of weeks ago, oh, where thanks. you shared your, uh, your, your thesis on how, to say it most briefly, how uh, Arab nationalism was sort of more consonant with decentralized media like the internet than it was with what went before it. And I, I'm going to want to get into sort of American nationalism and what doing this thesis and this investigation kind of taught you because you were doing it at the same time we were watching nationalism rise in America. But before we get to that, I'm hoping you can explain sort of uh, how did you how did you figure this out? I mean, it's, you know, you don't want to you don't want to cast Islam, obviously, and say, oh, Islam is this kind of religion versus that. But there there was something kind of characteristic that it resonated with me because, you know, I knew about the Arabs and the millet system that they came up with for uh, for finance when uh, Europe had developed central currency with its expansionist needs. Uh, the Arab world was using a millet system, which was actually much more decentralized and it wasn't based on interest and extraction. It was sort of like a system of local currencies and really what you were talking about in terms of Arab nationalism and, and how it works so well on the net really rang true with me 
uh, kind of for that reason that it seemed decentralized as a as an economy rather than as centralized as ours. But but how did you get to that to that conclusion? Right. Most significantly, what my position is is not so much that Arab nationalism is consonant with digital media, uh, is that Arab nationalism was not consonant with the media of its day, that being television and radio. It exists to various extents in the 20th century, but it never quite catches on and seizes hold of the geopolitical reality in the same way that European nationalism uh, and New World nationalisms did in the 19th century. What I think the, the web and digital technology is especially consonant with is actually uh, an Islamic concept, which is that of the Ummah, right? Now, the Ummah is essentially this idea of a distributed polity of Muslims worldwide who aren't necessarily governed by Sharia law, who don't necessarily live in Muslim-majority countries, yet there's actually a, a, an imagined unity of these, of these Muslims. Now, obviously, there are sectarian differences. Uh, this is sort of a, a pure concept that, that tends uh, to lose a great deal of its purity when implemented in reality. There's actually a Buddhist concept that's very similar to it, which is that of the Sangha, which is this community of the faithful worldwide. Everyone who has, uh, you know, decided to walk down the, the noble path of the Buddha is part of this group called the Sangha. Uh, now, uh, in Islam, we see the equivalent with the Ummah. And what I'm arguing, what I argued in my thesis and in my ongoing work, is that digital technology actually lends itself very well to this idea of a distributed polity, right? Where identification, where unity and solidarity emerge in disparate places uh, around the globe, right? This is a, a globalized community, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have globalist ambitions. And I think that's really uh, where some of the differences between these uh, media ecosystems and the political and identitarian formations that grow out of it kind of resonates, right? Globalism is this concept that belongs very much to this era of broadcast. Now, the era of broadcast was when, as I said before, Arab nationalism uh, was attempting to uh, sort of claim its rightful place on the world stage. Right. And it didn't tend to work as Absolutely. well as, as it does now. And obviously, when you start talking, even just in, in normal language about, well, you know, that Islam can can be experienced, you know, in isolation, sort of across a, a a more ethereal network, you know, that everyone's connected. What it obviously brings to mind is, oh, well, look how, you know, ISIS can use Twitter to activate people who, you know, feel that they're in solidarity with that cause, even though they're Americans living in California. Yeah, absolutely. That that really is uh, what we're seeing. Uh, that social media in particular have amplified and really accelerated the development of these uh, distributed identitarian blocks. And 
while my thesis and my work for the past few years have focused on the Arab world and then more generally the Muslim world, I really want to stress that this is something that applies to everyone uh, who's touched by digital technology. You know, I, I try to make the distinction between the big U, Uma, which is this uh, Islamic concept that I just described, and the emergence of what I call small U, Ummas, which are small distributed identitarian blocks that exist across the globe, uh, but are not globalist in their ambition necessarily. There is a, uh, a sense of uh, non-local solidarity in these, in these highly nationalist and in some cases anti-globalist movements. No question. These groups utilize the rhetoric of nationalism, but in fact, what they're imagining is not a nation in the same sense uh, as we saw in the 19th century, or even in the sense of Arab nationalism. You know, this is not an ethno-nationalism. I, I think this is quite clear when you look at the way uh, the American alt-right, and I'm referring to the original alt-right, you know, that, that grew out of groups like the National Policy Institute. Those alt-rights, those people, uh, the, the people who identify with the alt-right, clearly demonstrate greater affinity with, say, the Golden Dawn in Greece. Now, Greek ethno-nationalism ought to be separate from, let's say, I'm using this in scare quotes, white American ethno-nationalism. Those are two separate nations in the 19th century conception of nationalism, right? So what yeah, is but this? The one that's the one that's emerging, though, I mean, through the net, the one that we see is that is a different the other all right, <laughs> you know? Well, yes, uh, I mean, that's that's actually a very interesting thing to, to watch happen. Uh, there, there is this splintering of the alt right. And it actually is along this line of what constitutes nationalism. You know, you see guys like, I don't know how active uh, you are on Twitter. Uh, there's this fellow, Bill Mitchell. Uh, who's uh, becoming very popular, and he is absolutely what I would call an American civic nationalism. He absolutely rejects the racism uh, and the xenophobia of uh, what we might call the traditional alt-right. And he identifies very strong, strongly with Donald Trump. He came to prominence as a, as a Trump booster. So there you have an example of a person who is actually trying to imagine this national unity uh, in a very real sense. Whereas I think that the alt-right uh, that preceded him uh, is more in line with that small U UMA, where they'll use this kind of white nationalist rhetoric. But the fact is, they feel more affinity towards far-right nationalists, quote-unquote, far-right actors, let's say, in, um, say, Colombia, than they do with their white co-ethnics who fall on the political left here in the United States. Right. Well, likewise, wouldn't uh, uh, an ISIS supporter feel more affinity with, you know, his his brethren fighters in, in Syria or Iraq than he does with the uh, peaceful Muslims at the uh, at the giant mosque in Los Angeles? No question. That, that's absolutely true. But I guess now then for us, then the, the looming question becomes, I guess both which which of these alt rights does Donald Trump identify with and does it matter which of these alt rights identify with him? Yes, that's a that's a very good question. And I think what 
is clear and actually has been clear from the get-go is that that original core alt-right represented by the National Policy Institute and, and other groups, you know, the, the dapper white nationalists that the uh, Washington Post falls all over themselves to uh, talk about, they've never viewed themselves as belonging to Trump. They've always viewed Donald Trump as a phenomenon that they intended to use to surf their way to media prominence. Whereas I think that if you look at these genuine civic nationalists, people like Bill Mitchell or whomever, they, they belong to Donald Trump. As to where Donald Trump's loyalties or affinities lie, that's anyone's guess. I mean, I think the safe money is on Donald Trump's affinities lying with Donald Trump. Or perhaps with this kind of distributed, global, ultra-wealthy elite, which is, in its own way, uh, a small U-UMA as well. I mean, perhaps one of uh, the first to emerge uh, out, of the, out of the digital age. I mean, without, without being too techno-determinist about it, you know, it becomes easy. And I'm sure there's a lot of uh, listeners who think, well, gosh, the fucking internet, you know is doing this, you know, that that at least with the global media, though it was a bit, you know, corporate controlled and all, um, there was uh, some editorial control, some modicum of, of you know, not just governance, but but moderation in what sort of imagery and ideas were, were perpetuated. And now that, well, we don't live in a, a global uh, corporate-owned uh, content universe anymore. We, we're in a corporate-owned uh, infrastructure now more than ever before. Instead of a publicly-owned one, you know, we're on these private platforms, which are, uh, you know, biased towards uh, promoting certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of content, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with the the, the quality or veracity of the content. Um, you know, do you do you feel like the the net makes it harder for us to have a coherent and moderated uh, civic conversation. Yes, I would go so far as to say it's impossible. Uh, you know, I think that with the flattening of the net, what you see is uh, the delegitimization of legitimate truth. You know, by, by virtue of its proximity uh, to untruth, real news and fake news take on a more or less equal value uh, in the eyes of the reader. This is actually something that's been uh, discovered. This was discovered, um, you know, within the past decade by totalitarian regimes in uh, China, for example, Russia, uh, Venezuela, uh, where these, these regimes realized that in order to silence dissent, it was actually very messy to go after people individually, right? It was very messy and actually, in some cases, technically impossible to shut down organs of dissent on the internet. But they realized what they could do is seed uh, illegitimate sources and juxtapose those illegitimate sources next to the legitimate ones, hold them up as more or less equal and uh, their work was done for them. They didn't need to shut down uh, legitimate dissent. Uh, all they had to do was prop up a little bit of illegitimate content. 
and in doing so just the whole the whole system kind of falls apart and you know frankly that's what we're seeing right now because that that new faux balance between real and unreal becomes you know it trickles up and becomes the fulcrum of balance that regular mainstream journalists use to construct their supposedly journalistic balanced stories you know all you have to do is make one side you know super extreme to create a false a false center you know and it feels like that's kind of what happens when it when you see journalists on cnn or or msnbc or somewhere trying to say well the, you know the climate deniers will argue or trump's people will argue that they're trying to to uh I mean, they legitimize it uh, simply by by showing it as the alternative view. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't even need to be presented in that uh, false equivalence sense that we, we recognize uh, from years on cable news. You know, I argue that this is a quality inherent to the World Wide Web, which is essentially a hypertext document. So for listeners who aren't familiar with this idea. There's this kind of ideal of the hypertext that was articulated by a man named Ted Nelson. And his goal was essentially to have a database where every quantum of information could be linked directly to every other quantum of information. Uh, Now, when Tim Berners-Lee develops the World Wide Web, he takes this hypertext ideal and he has to kind of make it practical and functional. And that's how we get hypertext markup language, right, which is a sort of reduced abbreviated, abridged version of this hypertext ideal. But the idea essentially is that every bit of information is only one jump away from any other bit of information, which means that true and false are side by side constantly. Uh, There is nothing in the hypertext except false equivalence. (laughs) Everything is equivalent in the Nelsonian hypertext ideal and the World Wide Web that we use. This is kind of the offspring of Ted Nelson's hypertext ideal uh, uh, suffers from uh, that that legacy, if you want to call it that. So you've got then on the one hand, you have this uh, uh, I guess you'd call it the ontological relativism of hypertext <laughs> content, right? And, uh, uh, you know, the, the ease with which someone can then construct a, uh, a really false understanding or a, a distorted reflection of, you know, of their own projection into reality. So you have it on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have this uh, sort of networked solidarity phenomenon that the internet allows, you know, certain kinds of people to find each other or to find the tweets and the things and and to, to get in their own, uh, to get into a reality tunnel, but but ultimately one that's that's shared by this disparate group of of people from maybe even just across the country and it creates a kind of a perfect storm for a new sort of uh, uh, something like American nationalism um, to emerge and I think even though maybe uh, some people can't quite uh, articulate what it is. I think that's at the at the heart of a lot of people's fear right now. You know that oh my God, that swastikas are going up, and they found each other, and they don't believe in the news, and now what are we going to do? Right. 
Well, you know, the, the nation state and nationalism are, are going to continue to persist, just as globalism uh, is going to continue to persist. But what we have to contend with now is the emergence of these small U-Umas, to use that phrase again. And I think that it's really those small U-Umas that are spray painting the swastikas, so to speak. Right? Let me reiterate again, I'm not saying that Muslims are spray painting these swastikas. What I'm saying is that these kind of network solidarities of white nationalists who found each other through social media and other uh, digital technologies, they are finally coming into visibility, right? This is a new reality that we're going to need to contend with. But it's not, I don't think, uh, the beginning of some kind of Hitlerian nightmare state led by Donald Trump. You know, I think that uh, all the talk of him as their god emperor, uh, I think is very much mistaken. And I think that many of the people on the very extreme edges of the alt-right have long ago come to realize this. I mean, spend a little time on uh, 8chan or any of the other big uh, networking sites for, for the really hardcore of the alt-right. And this is what you'll see. You'll see that there's actually a great deal of skepticism towards Donald Trump, and there always has been. It seems like you're saying that there's, you know, between the small UMA and the big UMA, that there's like kind of a bad nationalism and a good nationalism. <laughs> In other words, don't worry about what you're hearing about all these neo-Nazis and, and the sort of the evil Brexit Hail Britannia people. You know, that's that's just like the new little fringe groups. The real nationalism, you know, although not perfect, at least is sort of a well-intentioned nationalism. I mean, is that, is that sort of what you mean? Well, in a sense. I mean, I think in a way nationalism is spoiled milk, right? Nationalism is a product of the 19th century. It grew out of the media environment of the 19th century. And it couldn't really survive as a fresh and vital and healthy, that is to say, good mode of imagining solidarities and organizing groups of people under a, a system of governance. That's why in the 20th century with broadcast and satellite television, we begin to see globalism overlay itself on top of these nationalist infrastructures, right? The nation state continues to exist throughout the 20th century, but superimposed over it is this new globalist dispensation, right? So what I'm saying is essentially we have this kind of sort of dry-rotted nationalist imaginary that still exists in political reality as these kind of weakened nation-states. They're all under this umbrella of sort of a uh, of global institutions like the World Bank and the IMF and the UN and some that do a lot of really good work and some that do a lot of really bad work. And then emerging up through some of the cracks in these sort of embrittled institutions, right, that are left over from the 19th and 20th centuries, we're seeing these small U-Umas. And in a way, the language to describe them doesn't really exist yet. That's one of the reasons why they're relying on this rhetoric of 19th century nationalism. The other part that, uh, I think is is spooky to people that another inarticulated spookiness is the the almost uh, magical way that the the alt right seems to have 
functioned and, uh, and, and connected with one another and disseminated their, their memes. And I know there's actually, I mean, and I think you'd be probably the, the, one of the best people to speak to about this, but I, I think there's actually some explicit uh, uses of, of magic by these groups, you know, and, and partly it's like any, any group that's going to really understand um, how they're connected non-locally is a group that's going to be more likely to understand the uh, the occult say than uh, you know people who for whom everything has to be discreet but I think there are also really um, explicit ways that they were attempting to to conjure in a sense uh, I mean did you see that oh no question yeah I, again this is if you spent any time on 8chan you would see post after post talking about meme and magic they really they actually kind of created a god out of Pepe the frog, or they, they attempted to sort of graft him onto some Egyptian frog god named Keck. Keck is also a reference to uh, World of Warcraft slang. It's all very intricate and um, kind of convoluted. Yeah, I agree. I think so that- For people that don't know, share what, what, oh, what sure. was Pepe the frog? Sure. Pepe the frog was basically um, a cartoon stoner frog uh, very innocuous little web comic uh, whose image was reproduced frequently on image boards like the original 4chan. And somewhere along the way, it's never quite been pinpointed which post it was, people started using these images of Pepe the Frog in order to sort of punctuate statements uh, of edgy political positions. And it all kind of snowballed from there. Pepe the Frog became an icon in very short order uh, for this emergent white nationalism that existed on these image boards. But to back up a little bit, I guess I'd, I'd kind of like to make some distinctions, again, between the 19th, the 20th, and the 21st century in a way that, that leads into this question of magic uh, that you raised. So... I've been rereading some of Slavoj Žižek's essays on September 11th, uh, and one of the points that he makes is that the 20th century expressed what he called, in Lacanian terms, a passion for the real, right? This real hunger to get at the irreducible nugget of reality, the thing that you couldn't alter with symbolism or desire or imagination in any way, right? In a lot of ways, the 20th century's passion for the real was an outgrowth of the 19th century's passion for the imaginary. So in the 19th century, you see a lot of utopianism. You see this real faith in scientific progress and this project of improving mankind to some uh, perfect future. You know, the 19th century is really when we get these great science fiction writers uh, who begin to envision a future uh, that, that could ultimately elevate mankind uh, above its current state. Now, the 20th century attempts to bring all that into actual being. And uh, in some cases, that, that turns quite sour. You know, I think we all see what uh, happened in the USSR with the attempts to make real the imaginary uh, of Marxism, perhaps before its time. Now, I would argue, again, and to, to kind of 
push it one step further, that the 21st century uh, is expressing a passion for the symbolic. And this is greatly aided, I mean, if not maybe even fully inspired uh, by distributed digital communications technology. And now we're at this point where we're playing with the symbolic. And in many cases, we're kind of unable to separate the symbolic from the imaginary and from the real. Uh, in a way, the 2016 election was a competition of symbolic sets. Uh, Trump is a symbolic victory to these, uh, in, to these people uh, in these very precarious situations in, in flyover country. But I would say that there's a, a I mean, and maybe this is optimistic, but there's a, a, a new found faith in the power of language. In other words, what what they appreciate in a Trump was by giving things different names, you know, whether yes. it's, you know, Lying Ted or Little Marco or, or, or Crooked Hillary, he had different names. People were realizing, wow, if you change the words around something, you change the thing, which is, again, a very magical outlook. And I think that's why, in some sense, what lost Hillary the election was when she said, oh, Donald Trump and his basket of deplorables, because what she was doing was naming an entire group and a group that experienced being named as being changed. And that's what makes me keep thinking about, again, about magic, that, oh, you just, you're, you're uh, uh, conjuring little little Marco, you're conjuring lying Ted, you know, and you're repeating that meme, you're repeating that incantation as if to make it to make it so in the public imagination, you know, and that in itself is a very uh, different way of doing politics or of leading of leading civic discourse than we've had before. It is, and if you take the supernatural side of all of that, in a sense, it doesn't even really matter if there's anyone there to hear it. It can be, you know, a few thousand Twitter Nazis uh, just rememeing something again and again and again and again, and somehow, just by virtue of the sheer volume of repetition, that trips some sort of metaphysical boundary, and you meme something to life, right, or to death, I guess. Yeah, sure, <laughs> exactly. Would you think that the uh, the curative is it? Uh, do we fight fire with fire? In other words, do we go into the symbolic, recognizing that America is in this symbolic phase, or is the uh, is the answer to to uh, dig more deeply into reality, you know, which is what I think probably I've been arguing more, you know, to do mutual aid in the real world and let let reality rise to, uh, uh, you know, so that uh, new symbols emerge rather than fighting this on some semiotic level. Uh, I think that the operating uh, on the on the plane of reality shouldn't be sold short. It shouldn't be underestimated. You know, uh, among the many issues uh, that we're seeing in the postmortems of the Clinton campaign was just this simple failure to do basic politics, which is to offer people, uh, offer people things to say, we'll give you uh, 
help with college so that you won't go broke. Uh, we'll give universal health care. Uh, we'll work to end things like flex time and all these utter uh, horrors uh, of sort of digitized capitalism. Um, so yeah, no, politics But that doesn't, but the, that government will give you something does not appeal to this, you know, emerging sense of, uh, uh, of one's own will, you know, of, of one's own ability. What someone who's just like trying to learn how to flex their own muscles and make the reality that they want, you know, someone who's read the secret, say, and wants to be able to wish their own reality, they don't want the government to like make it better. They want um, they want someone to acknowledge their ability, their power to rise up. The handout from Hillary or the left sort of sounds like disempowerment rather than uh, whatever it's meant as. No question. And that's why, that's why frankly, uh, the, the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, the, the wing that controls it, is incapable of solving this problem. Uh, the solution has to come from much, much further left which is at the grassroots and does speak to empowering individuals through their communities, through real on the ground, actual solidarity to get actual things that will actually make your life better. Not, uh, you know, for whatever reason they thought this would make people happy, you know, uh, a Beyonce song or Lena Dunham doing some stupid rap. I know, which reminds me, I mean, just a couple of days ago, I, I there was a uh, uh, Santa Claus who went into a, uh, you know, a party in Istanbul and killed 39 people. And uh, when I went on the net to find out about it, social media was abuzz with Mariah Carey failing to appropriately lip sync her, uh, her New Year's Eve event. And I was just like, wow, you know, we really care more about what just happened at Times Square than what's in the deaths of these people. Yeah, it's 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 sick. Um, and, you know, I, I also I, I don't want to urge people to abandon uh, fighting on that semiotic level either. You know, we need to be operating at all levels. We need to be operating at this symbolic level as well, because this is kind of the driving psychological modality that's being created through the Internet and digital technology. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's weird. I kind of it feels like a natural wrapping place here. What I want to encourage you is, in addition to working with me on the ground, then to do good things here, the the people and students of Queens and beyond. Um, I'm hoping that, that, you know, through a show like Team Human um, and people like you, that we can also work on uh, on the symbols as well. You know, this is this is this is a radio show. This is an Internet podcast, for God's sake. You know, this is not on the ground mutual aid. So, I mean, really, I think the job of this show and and you and those those of us who are, are gathering uh, with this intent is to uh, be able to envision the scenarios that we're that we're striving for to be able to describe you know pathways and and goal sets that uh, that encourage and inspire people to you know to act 
uh, in their best interests. In other words, let's do this positively in a spirit of, of love and hope and uh, the best expectations rather than out of fear of, you know, diminishing returns and imminent doom. Well put. So thank you, Brian Hughes, for being a, a long time and, and true member of Team Human. You know, I encourage everyone to, uh, I guess, come to the queenscollege.media website where they can uh, click on a link and read, uh, read your uh, master's thesis, which is uh, really fun going. And, uh, and to come by, you know, come by the laboratory for digital humanism at Queens College. Um, hang out with us. Uh, take a class. Come to a colloquium and uh, get involved in this conversation. And, and hopefully together we can uh, uh, make the reality that we want to see. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. I've got special thanks to our newest Team Human members and donors, Sean Feeney, Sarah Wilson, Raymond Jepson, Dode with a magical 23, and Stephen Guggen, Alexander Steinhardt of Off Time, Bruce Dixon. We're also being broadcast on a growing network of public and community radio stations. If you've got a favorite station, please let them know about the show and the fact that they can have this fine non-commercial content absolutely free. This show is produced and edited by Stephen Bartolomeu. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.